found Haggai. We are beginning a new series on a little-known and scarcely read book of the Old Testament known as Haggai, the book of Haggai. It's actually the second shortest book of the Old Testament. And if you're into Bible trivia or just if you want to impress your friends later, the shortest book of the Old Testament is Obadiah. But Haggai is the second shortest. Now, Haggai served as a prophet during an incredibly crucial time in the life of the people of Israel. And for us to fully appreciate in these next few weeks the words that God has for us through his prophet Haggai, we need to get a little historical perspective. So if you will, the nation of Israel really came to its pinnacle, reached its peak during the reign of King Solomon. At that time, Israel te Israel's territory had expanded. She had amassed great wealth. She had incredible power in the world. Unfortunately, uh, in the midst of those things being the pinnacle, the, re the result of having expanded toward territory, great wealth, and increased power lessened rather than increased Israel's dependence upon the Lord. And so just as things were at their best, because they reversed their priorities and failed to put God in first place in their lives, Israel as a nation, as a kingdom, was eventually split in two, into two kingdoms by civil war, Israel and Judah. And both kingdoms would eventually fall before the world's superpowers. First, the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire would take out the northern kingdom of Israel. And some years later, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonian Empire. The people were sent off into exile. And with the loss of Judah, the loss of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, came a final crushing symbol for the people of Israel of God's absence among them. Now, if you're familiar with our story, you know that a few prophets and many years later, things changed for the Israelites in exile. Specifically in response to Daniel's prayer and specifically in response to his covenant promises, God moved King Cyrus and later King Darius, the kings of Babylon, to allow the Israelites in exile to return home, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And initially, things began to turn around. A group of Jews returned to their land with great joy. They put God first in their lives. They worshipped him and they be began to rebuild the temple. But 15 years later, things are at a standstill. 15 years later, there's been no further progress. It's almost as though it's been a moment frozen in time. And it's these, these 15 years later, it's after these 15 years of nothing having happened. It's in the midst of these circumstances that Haggai prophesies to the people. If you have it in front of you, it's also going to be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord from the first chapter of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may be, take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains and on the grain, the new wine, the oil and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, Joshua, son of Jehozak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatal, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I say, we're going to be spending the next few weeks listening to Haggai's actually four messages from the Lord. And together what we're going to discover is how timely and how relevant his words are for us. For example, his first message this morning to the people. How does it happen? How does it happen? happen? This is, what Haggai's addressing is how does it happen that we lose our passion for God? How do we, what causes our commitment to Christ to fall by the wayside? How do our lives increase in years and yet have so little to show for them in terms of our maturity and progress in the faith? I want, to, to, in order to really frame this properly for you, to keep in mind that Haggai is talking, when he speaks for the Lord, he's talking to the committed ones, the people we would call the committed when the call to return to Jerusalem came many, many years later, it's important to remember that most people stayed behind in Babylon. Those who had been sent into exile in Babylon stayed behind. They had spent so long living in another land that it became their home. They grew up there. They came, became used to the culture, to that way of life. And so when the call came to return home, most people stayed with the life they knew. The people that Haggai is speaking to are the committed, the people who stood out, who were the minority, who uprooted and re relocated their lives, everything they knew. And mind you, they left the comfort and stability of what they knew for what we would call a fixer-upper, a rebuilding project. The land that they were coming back to, their homeland had been ravaged by war and had been further decimated by years of neglect afterwards. The temple that they were coming back to was in shambles. And yet these were the people who made the decision to leave what they knew and come back, to come back and to rebuild. And together we're even told that these people in coming back, the minority, they built a foundation. They built the literal foundation for the temple. And if you know anything about building, if you know anything about just any, any moment when we start something in life, we have sort of an adage that the first step is usually the hardest, isn't it? I mean, when you just don't know where to begin, that first step, that foundation that has to be built is so crucial, and it's so hard because it is so crucial. But they took that step. They built the foundation. 
They built the foundation of the temple. They laid the groundwork. They had a strong basis for their future. They were the few. They were the committed. They came back. They built the foundation. And yet 15 years later, the temple isn't finished. There's been no progress. Nothing has happened since. And what Haggai speaks to, what Haggai wants the people to see and wants us to see, is really the state of the building project, the literal physical building project. The state of that building project is actually reflective of the internal reality of their lives. The lack of progress, that things remained at a standstill, is reflective of the lack of growth and maturity in their own lives. What happened? How, How did it happen? If you're familiar at all with the Bible, we know that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we get a little historical perspective. That when the few came back, the committed came back and began to rebuild, they encountered opposition. Jewish workers, right from the get-go, were being threatened by their rivals, the Samaritans. And at the same time, there were also lobbyists back in Babylon who were creating bureaucratic hurdles in the midst of their efforts to rebuild the temple and to reestablish the land. And from Ezra and Nehemiah, what's apparent is that All of these delays, all of this persecution led to the work finally just stopping. But Haggai gives us even more of a perspective on this, that it wasn't just opposition that led to things ceasing, the work ceasing, things just totally stopping. But in fact, the rest of the picture is life just moved on. Gradually, in the face of opposition, in the face of challenges or hurdles, the people lost their vision. And they got caught up in the routine of life. Working their jobs, building their homes, raising their families, that sort of thing. They drifted, and it's important that word drifted, they drifted into a life where worship wasn't a priority. They got used to life without a temple. Even their leaders, the governor and the high priest, got used to things being status quo, just kind of the way they were. And and I think, just if we put ourselves in that space, it most likely wasn't deliberate. The the fires of revival that initially came with their commitment to come back and building the foundation, the fires of revival, weren't. it wasn't like they had a meeting and said, we're done. The fires of revival probably cooled through a slow fade. And it was almost unconsciously, little by little, that God became peripheral in the lives of the people. Haggai, in fact, even tells us, even reveals to the people, reflects back to them what their mindset has become. That's kind of where he starts. The word of the Lord is echoing the words of the people. The people say, Haggai reports, the people say, the time has not yet come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Translation, if you were to ask the man on the street, the the Jew who had returned, why has the temple not been finished? Their response would have been, well, you know, hey, don't get me wrong. I think rebuilding the temple is a really important thing. I think it's a great cause. But, you know, the timing's just not right now. You know, I got bills to pay. And I got this home to build. I got a family to raise. You know, life is really kind of full for us right now. But you know what? Later, you know, later, I'm going to have time for that. You know, someday, I'm not sure when that is, but someday I'm going to get closer to God. I'm going to get closer to God and I'm going to make him a priority. But the timing right now is just not right. Haggai doesn't just tell us what the people are thinking, but he also reflects to them and to us where this orientation, where this shift has left the people. Collectively, as a community, the picture is that they're stuck. Individually, they are running in circles. He uses a couple of different ways to describe this. Fifteen years later, they have nothing to show for their lives. He says that you've planted much, but you've harvested little. 
Their lives as a community, individually, are restless and unfulfilled. You eat, but you never have enough. You have blankets, but you're never warm. You're never satisfied. As worship hasn't been a priority for them anymore, as God has been pushed to the periphery, as the lives of the people have become busy and preoccupied with other interests and activities, the local economy is struggling and showing no signs of rebounding. And the people are frustrated. They earn wages, Haggai says, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's a powerful image. Everything they earn goes into a purse that has holes in it. Their lives are empty. They are never satisfied. Nothing seems to last. Is this starting to sound familiar yet? How many of us here today, and again, we're talking to the committed. We're not talking to the people who didn't show up. We're talking about the people who came back, the people who built the foundation. How many of us here today, how many of us who say, I am a follower of Christ, can remember that time, whether we grew up in a Christian home or we came to faith later when we were, as we like to say, on fire for Jesus. When we were committed, when Jesus was the center of our life, and maybe along the way we even recommitted our life to Christ. We, were, we couldn't get enough of this relationship with this God in Christ. We couldn't get enough of understanding how to follow Christ, what it means to follow Christ, who he is, what, what he's about. And yet, how many of us somewhere along the way, and it wasn't something conscious, it just sort of happened, that fire for Jesus cooled. How many of us, maybe initially, we were ready to take on the world, ready to do anything, believing, as the gospel proclaims, that anything is possible with this God, but we faced opposition, we faced persecution, we faced hurdles, we faced temptation or pressure, or maybe we just faced the routine of life, and the honeymoon was over. And I, we never even really remember when exactly it happened, but we found ourselves just one day kind of following the crowd, going through the motions, I mean, you just do what everybody else does. You get a job, you find a home, you buy it, you rent it, you have a family, go on vacation. You just kind of do what everybody else does because that's what living is. And every now and again, you give your nod to God. Sound familiar? In the midst of this reality for the people then and for many of us now, a place that many of us all of us, I think, at some point in our lives can fall into, the Lord, through the prophet Haggai, gives a wake-up call. And I want to emphasize less the word wake-up and more the word call, because that's the key to the problem, call. The, the diagnosis here is that for many of us, where we fall apart, where we fall away, is when we begin to, to live our lives in terms of how we see them and, and let alone how we live them, we tend to live our lives based upon our choices. We look at our lives based upon the choices that we make. And so our lives are based on the choices of what others want us to do. So what, do we ask, what should I do? We ask other people and our choices are based on what they tell us we should do. And in the case here for the people that Haggai is speaking to, the people around them as they come back, this remnant, they want them to stop building the temple. They want them to stop changing the landscape of Jerusalem where they've come back to. So the people are choosing to say, no more of this. They're being affected by the choices of others. But for some of us, maybe we're not affected by the choices of others, but we still view our life through our own choices. Maybe we don't make decisions in our life based upon what other people want us to do or tell us to do, but we do make decisions in our lives. How we decide to live, how we see our lives is based upon what we want to do. 
And that's exactly what Haggai calls out here too. The people want to build their houses. The people want to be involved in building their lives. It's about the choices they want to make. And what Haggai draws out is that when it comes to God, life is not as much about our choices as it is about God's call. In the church, among the committed, among those who say they follow Christ, as a pastor, and I've shared this with you before, and it's, it's a growing epidemic, more and more I find the most often overlooked question by believers. Believers, committed followers of Christ, when they're looking at their life, thinking about decisions, reflecting on where they've been and where they're going, the most often overlooked question is, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to be? People come in and they immediately say, well, people tell me I ought to do this, and I think I want to do this. The thing that often is left off the the table, not part of the conversation, is what is God calling me to do? How do we miss this? It seems so obvious. How can we forget that question? We miss this right from the beginning. We've gotten accustomed as Christians. We've gotten accustomed as the church as viewing salvation in terms of this this very idea of choice. Again, we've elevated choice above God's call, and we've even framed salvation that way. We think of salvation in terms of our choice and our decision. The stereotypical view we have if we were to share the gospel with other people and how we explain it in our own lives is God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, and then we choose whether or not to accept his offer. And there's truth in this. The challenge, the problem is, is that when we place the emphasis on our choice, Our understanding of our relationship to this God, our understanding of our relationship to Jesus gets skewed when we put the emphasis on our choice. Because salvation sort of becomes this. You know, Jesus, thanks for getting me out of this jam. Things kind of got messed up. Thanks for saving me, getting me out of this jam. And you know, when you think about it in terms of your choice, isn't it interesting how you keep thanking Jesus for the same thing over and over again? Thank you for getting me out of this jam. I'll take it from here. Whoops. Thank you for getting me out of this jam. I'll take it from here. Whoops. And a great manifestation of this within the the church at large is what happens when we think of this relationship with God's salvation in terms of our choice first is unconsciously we begin to engage God only when we need a blessing, only when we need some encouragement, only when we need a little security. You look around, you see the same people I do, maybe you're that person. At some point in my life when it wasn't my job to be here, I was one of these people. You know, I kind of got distant from God till all of a sudden, uh, I needed that salvation fix. Is it, does anyone else notice that church attendance tends to go up during the holidays? Is there a reason why Christmas and Easter were jam-packed? And the people that you see are the people that you grew up with. They were, and they say they're a part of grace, but they show up at Christmas Easter. But in between, their lives are busy with other things. Isn't it interesting? Do you notice, too, that whenever there's a major trauma in our nation, in our world, or in someone's life, all of a sudden those people show up at church? But then after 9-11's been over a couple of months, after the tsunami's done, where'd everybody go? Where'd everybody go? When we base our lives first and foremost on our choices, what we miss, what gets pushed out of the way, what we become blind or asleep to is that before we choose, we are first called. 
God's call is what's primary in our life. Salvation is more than God helping us out of a jam. If you will, the reason why we're in the jam that we find ourselves in the first place and the reason why we end up back in that jam again and again and again is because fundamentally we are lost. Fundamentally, we are directionally challenged. Fundamentally, we are dead in the water. And that's why when we talk about salvation in the church, we use words like redemption and reconciliation. We use words that embody more than just getting out of a jam. We use synonyms for salvation like redemption and reconciliation. Because if we truly understand God's call, when God calls us to be saved, he's not looking just to solve a problem in our lives. When God calls us into salvation, he's calling us into a discovery. A discovery that we haven't just been called out of a jam, but that we've been called into existence by this God. It's the realization when we experience God's call to salvation that you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That we have an identity. That we are not here by accident. That we belong to someone. And if we know whose we are, we know who we are. God's call to salvation is a call to discover that we've been called not only with an identity, but we've been called for a purpose. That we have a reason for being here. We have a part to play, a role to fulfill. So God's call to salvation isn't just about getting us out of a jam. It's coming to know who we are and it's coming to realize we have a destiny. Identity and destiny. And if we're living our lives apart from God's call, if salvation is just a fix, if it's all about our choice, apart from that call of God, then this life in Christ, this life with this God is fruitless and frustrating as it was for the people Haggai's prophesying to. Notice Haggai's description for these committed people, these people who took that initial step and built the foundation. They are fruitless in their lives. They are frustrated. And he's very specific in saying God has basically withdrawn himself. He's brought a drought on everything. Nothing you touch will prosper because your lives, you're living on your own. You think you're making choices. You think you're the master of your own destiny. You think you define who you are. And as long as you continue to live your life this way, you will stay stuck, running in circles. Now, if you're really smart or really tracking, you've got to be real careful here because if it's all about God's call, the natural place for us to go to is to say, well, does that mean if we follow God's call that our lives won't be filled with hardship or struggle? This is kind of one of those places where you get into that really funky theology that's very, very popular, which is, it's, it, we make it real simple. If you follow God's call, blessing, prosperity, health, wealth, everything's awesome. If you don't follow God's call, tragedy, hardship, struggle. Boy, I wish it were that simple. That's not what Haggai is prophesying here. Following God's call, understanding God's call upon one's life does not remove the obstacles and challenges from our lives. Because while choice isn't the primary way we ought to live our life, choices matter. We make real choices. We are affected by the choices of other people. God's choices in and with our lives are not always easy for us to understand. But when we live not primarily out of the choices that we make or others make, but when we live primarily out of an understanding of God's call upon our lives, when we trust that, the kind of challenges we face and how we experience those struggles is different. Beloved, there's a difference between carrying stuff that doesn't belong to you. There's a difference between fighting battles that aren't yours. 
because of what others want for you or because of things that you've, you're claiming for yourself that you, no matter what, you're just saying, I'm having this, I'm taking this on. When we take on battles that aren't ours, when we carry stuff that doesn't belong to us, whether other people put it on it or we choose it for ourselves, what ends up happening is we live lives where we feel like we have no traction. There's no satisfaction, no momentum. You feel like you're spinning your wheels. But when you live your life out of God's call, when you know that you are called to carry a specific burden, when you understand and you can say, this is my challenge to meet, this is my obstacle to face, it's hard. It, it takes a lot out of you, but you grow. You mature, you progress because it's yours. It belongs to you. God called you to it. Another way of looking at this is life apart from God's call. If you want to know if you're living life apart from God's call, life apart from God's call is usually lived in one of two extremes. If you're living your life apart from a sense of God's call upon your life, you're in one of two extremes. Extreme number one, you're not aware of God's call in your life. You're doing everything. You're one of those per people who's trying everything. You say yes to everything. You take, there's not a challenge or a burden you won't take on. Somebody asks, you say yes. And you do that because you're trying to find yourself by taking on everything. You think you're going to prove you set yourself, figure out who you are, and your life's going to matter if you take on every challenge, every burden that's before you. But where do you end up with living that kind of life? Miserable. Miserable. Exhausted. Passive-aggressive. Don't people see all the things that I'm doing? Don't they see all the stuff that I say yes to? Don't they understand all the things that I'm carrying? Or you live in the other extreme if you don't know God's call upon your life. You don't do anything. You know who you are. You've become very, very good at your routine where you can do the bare minimum that's absolutely necessary. You have eked out your life to where you can settle for the status quo. You can get by. You don't try anything new. You don't take on anything new. There's no, you can't teach an old dog new tricks you say to yourself. There's no new challenges for you. you you've got it all just figured out and it works for you. And now you're a harder one not to crack because on the surface, Awesome. But deep, deep down, if you really are honest, you're miserable. You're miserable. You're miserable because we are meant to grow. We are meant to progress and mature. We are not meant to be static, to be planted and go no further. That's living life apart from God's call. Either you're trying everything and you're exhausting yourself, trying to figure out who you are and prove yourself to everybody that your life matters, or you're not doing anything. You don't care what anybody else thinks. You don't care about, you're just fine with eking by. But when you live life according to God's call, what happens is your perception changes. You realize that your identity and your destiny is not about the things that you're doing. It's not about the burdens you're carrying, the struggles you're facing, the accomplishments you make. But living life according to God's call is about recognizing that God is with you. And when you live according to God's call, when you're aware, as God says through Haggai to the people at the end of this passage, tell the people, I am with you. That's living life according to God's call. Your life, no matter what's going on in your life, literally, is a life filled with joy, with peace, with satisfaction. You doubt me? Isn't it interesting, the people we encounter in life, think about this, and this is a general trend, but it's, it's, it, it plays out. The people who we look at life who on, from the periphery, we say, man, they've got it all. They have everything. It's all just going for them. Do you ever notice those are the people, just like Haggai prophesies to, who are never satisfied, never fulfilled? They have the purses with holes in it. Do you notice the people who we step back and go, man, I wouldn't want their life. 
my gosh, they don't have, they're struggling just to put two, you know, two nickels together. Oh my gosh, look at what they're dealing with in their family. Have you ever encountered some of those individuals and you notice the difference? That they don't perceive themselves as being poor. They don't perceive themselves as suffering. They perceive themselves as God's presence is abundant in their life. What's up with that? We even have an example of this shift in perception when you're living according to God's call in one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells us. Have you ever thought about this story this way? The story of the prodigal son. The end of that story, right? There's a huge party going on. You talk to anybody there, they're, 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 they're feeling God's presence. The father is present. They're having a good time. Life is good. They are celebrating. Everybody would say this is the best day ever except for one person. The elder son, standing outside with his arms crossed, who says, hell no. Same situation. Everybody else thinks it's fantastic. Life is great. Joy, peace, satisfaction. But the elder son says, this is a living hell. What's the difference? Living according to God's call. Okay. The question is, how do we do that? How do we live according to God's call? How do we discern God's call? How do we avoid that slow fade that can happen in our lives? It's back to basics, my brothers and sisters in Christ. As with any other relationship, how do you recognize the voice of anyone in your life? You recognize it by spending time with them. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Why do we have a Bible? Why, do we ha Why did God give us this? He didn't just give us this to smack people over the head with it. He didn't just give it to us so we could collect them, different translations to have sit at home so we could impress people with the number of books we have. He didn't just give it to us so we could create t-shirts where we take selected verses out and say, this is my favorite verse. He gave us this book so that we would know his voice. He gave us this book so that we would come to recognize who this God is. And that's important because how do you know it's the voice of God? You have to know who this God is. You have to know the kind of things that God's about, the kind of things that God would say, the kind of things that God is calling us to. How do you recognize that in the midst of all the noise in this world? That's why we have this book. We recognize God's voice by reading and studying his word. And for those of us who say, but it's hard. I don't understand it. Yeah, it takes time. But, and Haggai is going to tap into this to the people. He's going to say, return to the story. Remember who you are. Remember who this God is. When we read and study the Bible, we recognize God's voice, his fingerprints. That's the first step to being able to discern God's call in our life. We have to know who this God is, what this God is about, the kind of things that this God says and points us to. And part of how we do this is not just reading this on our own or reading this alone, but part of why we're called every week to worship together. Part of why we're called to do something unique to faith, which is pray, is because it's not just about the, the information or the, the book. It's about reflection. In this first chapter alone in the Hebrew, these words are repeated. They're peppered all throughout what Haggai says. Consider, think it over, take a good hard look, pay attention. God wants us to understand his call, but we can only understand and hear his call, first, if we know who he is, understand what he's about, but second, if we listen, if we are reflective. How many of us actually ever think about our lives rather than just get up and live them? Part of why we gather in worship is not just to get through the songs and, okay, I listened to the message and I got through communion. Every aspect of worship is calling us to listen, to pay attention, to reflect, to think about what is God saying to me, to us today. We should be 
asking ourselves questions. We should be hearing questions that God is asking of us. There should be insights that are coming to us. And if you're not experiencing that, if, if what I'm saying to you right now makes absolutely, has, you have no frame of reference, you are deaf to God's call. And you need to wake up. Worship, and you, you guys love to say this, and I, when I say you guys, the, the older generation, because the younger generation, will you come to our worship service and we're jumping all around and we're raising hands and worship's almost like going to like a sports stadium or something like that. And you, worship's not about feeling. Amen. It's not just about feeling. Worship is about feeling, but it's about thought. It's about reflection. And as critical as we can be of worship that's just all about feeling, I don't know what I'm doing, but I just, it feels good. We can be equally critical and say, fine, you're here, you're going through the motions, but what are you thinking? How is it shaping your understanding of this God and your, his call upon your life? Worship and prayer is about engaging the spirit thoughtfully so that we can hear and understand God's call. And when we are inv invested in God's word, when we are participate in worship, when we think, we engage, when we pray, when we listen, what happens is we begin to discover and recognize major themes and ideas and directions in our life. I, I more and more believe, not only as a Christian, but as a pastor, when it comes to the big things of life, I'm not talking about little, little things like, what should I have for breakfast? There are no coincidences in life. I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I believe there are signs everywhere. I believe we've become blind to them. I'm tired of people saying, I want a miracle. We got, we've gotten so used to the highlight reel, the, the parting of the Red Sea and the sun that stops in the sky, that we miss the miracles that are happening every day of our lives. Miracles that are proclaimed to us by science. There are so many aspects of our existence that we, we, we just take as a given, but we never step back and realize we don't understand how it works, how it happens. There are miracles around us all the time, signs. There are no coincidences. When you know who this God is, when you know how he works, when you know what he's about, when you listen, when you reflect, you will be led. And it's not about getting all the answers at once. For many of us, our frustration is, you know what, I listened to God for a little while and I didn't get any answers. It's not about the answers. The answers are the journey of a lifetime. It's about the questions. It's about framing your life, asking and living out of the question of what does God want me to do? Where is the Spirit leading me? Who is Jesus calling me to be? And when we live our life framed out of that question, we find at a bare minimum not the answers, but the ability at times to let go of some things. The conviction to let go of some things. And we find at times the inspiration to grab hold of other things. One of the biggest indicators of whether we're living out of a sense of God's call could be simply this. When our pleasures and our delights are met, they are the delights of God as well. This is because God never desired for us to find pleasure in anything apart from himself. We need to understand that. God never designed us to, for us to find true pleasure, lasting pleasure in anything apart from himself. So if you've got this part of your life that's yours and not God's, you may think it's like the best part of your life. It's like your secret pleasure, but it's actually your secret cancer. It's killing you right now. And it's not just no big deal. It's a big deal. It is the major distraction obstacle in your life right now. Every pleasure, every joy God designs for us, desires for us, is meant to be experienced through him. Another way, at the top of our value system, if you like mental images, is a throne. And at the top of our value system, beloved, is this throne that the Lord is meant to sit upon. 
When anyone or anything other than God is allowed to sit on that throne, nothing in our lives will work as it should. Nothing in our lives will work as it should. We will experience, because of the absence of God in that place, continual frustration in our lives. The things that we put our hands to, the things we put our energy to, we will find ourselves running in circles. Our highs, whatever they may be, if God is not on that throne in that part of our life, will be temporary. It'll be like a sugar high. It'll feel great for temporarily, but the crash will be a lot more lasting. And that's why God's call in our lives, if you want a starting point, and that's where we finish today, where Haggai finishes today, the starting point of discerning God's call in our lives begins always with repentance, the call to repentance. God's not calling us to just make a choice to accept salvation. He's not just merely calling us to change our minds or change our life philosophy. He's calling us to repentance. Haggai calls the people to repentance, and repentance is a call to action. Listen to what he says. Haggai says for the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring the wood and build the house. Four commands in these short sentences. Consider, go, bring, build, and notice the rationale for taking action so that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. God desires that our pleasures and his pleasures are the same. And we live out of God's call when we take action to putting ourselves in the center of God's person and God's will. For us old school Lutherans, if you remember this from catechism, bring it all back. We talk in the Lutheran church, we talk in the Protestant church about justification and sanctification. Justification is recognizing the salvation that we have in Christ. Sanctification is everything else that comes after that, living out that salvation in Christ. The problem in the church is we know a lot about, about justification. We're all about Jesus getting us out of a jam, making us right with God. We have foregone sanctification. The problem is it's not just about the ticket. It's about the transformation. Why does the fire die? How do we fall away when we've made our relationship with God, when we've made salvation something that's a ticket, an insurance policy, rather than the very transformative power in our life? A couple more weeks of hearing more of what Haggai has to say, but this morning through the prophet Haggai, the Lord paints a picture of a people who have been so incredibly blessed but gradually have elevated the power of choice over the authority of God's call upon their lives. They started off great, but in the due course of time, life happened. And does not happen. Life happens. And they forgot who they were, their true identity. They forgot why they were there. They forgot their destiny in terms of the Lord's reason for their lives and his purpose for their work until one day all of a sudden they turned around and they were living for themselves, for their choices rather than out of a sense of God's leading, and their relationship with the Lord took a back seat and became the talk of tomorrow. I'll work on building God's house later. Someday I'll have more time for getting to know and follow the Lord. Is your life with the Lord a bunch of laters and someday's? This could very easily be a description of many of us. God's call upon our life affects every aspect of our life. It's not peripheral. It's the foundation upon which our life is built. God's call relates to the friends that we have. It relates to our marriage. It relates to our families. It relates to our jobs where we work. It relates to the schools that we're a part of, that we go to. It relates to the churches that we belong to. It relates to our neighborhoods. It's all part of God's revelation of our identity and destiny. In every one of those aspects of our lives, we are called to ask, 
Where is God calling me? The word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai to the people of Israel and to us. God commands his people to consider and evaluate their ways, to hear his voice. We have each been called, beloved. God is saying to us, you belong to me. You have been set apart and saved for a reason. Wake up. That temple that you're building, it isn't for me. I'm everywhere. That temple you're rebuilding is for you. And we know on the other side of this story that that temple has been replaced by the spirit of Christ that lives within us. The intimacy and priority of this relationship that our true home is in Christ has come when Paul writes, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple that God is seeking for us to build is in our bodies and our lives. The framing question, beloved, for us to ask this morning is, what is Jesus asking of me? How is the Spirit leading me? Where is the Lord calling me today? Why have I been put here, put here now? In your job, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your marriage, in this church. How would your life change if you answered those questions? How much would we grow, would we progress and mature if the framing question for us together was, where is God calling me? How is the spirit of Christ leading us? How much closer to the Lord would we be individually and collectively if our focus was not on what we're trying to build in our lives, but instead was on discovering what God is seeking to build through our lives? Beloved, let us consider our ways before the voice of the Lord as he calls us into our identity and destiny together. Amen? Amen. Amen.